You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dear God. It's not that bad. You'll survive. <sighs> okay. Here we go. I remember growing up in a small town in Utah. There was a local burger joint where I would eat every Friday night from the time I was five all the way until I was 13. The town was small, no more than 5,000 people, and looking around the place, I always saw the same local faces. Faces covered with dirt, dressed in worn plaid shirts and cowboy boots, who had used their calloused hands to shovel chili in their mouths while surrounded by photos of Andy Griffith and Norman Rockwell art. It was one of the oldest restaurants in town that seemed to be impervious to the hands of time. As the years ticked on, the old buildings surrounding it would be demolished and replaced with modern office buildings, and yet, the burger joint always stayed the same, thriving off a romanticized America that no longer existed. Or for that matter, a romanticized America that never existed. The nostalgia for rural farm life and the mythos of the American cowboy was strong in this rural town. After all, John Wayne and John Ford basically helped save it from extinction by bringing in film projects dedicated to telling the stories of these manly men conquering the wild frontier. It's this archetype of the American cowboy that's at the soul of the 1943 musical Oklahoma, and it's presented through Curly McLean. Curly McLean is one of the young, handsome cowboys in town who believes that in this country, there's two things you can do if you're a man. Live outdoors or in a hole. Sorry, I had to. He's in love with Laurie. She's in love with him. The whole town knows it, but apparently they don't. However, despite being revered for generations as the perfect Southern hero, is Curly McLean actually the villain of Oklahoma? Or is he a victim of a culture of toxic masculinity and ignorance? I'm Brendan from Wait in the Wings. I'm Anna, also known as It's Anna Chloe Anne. And this show calls for a double take.
Oklahoma premiered on Broadway in 1943 after a mixed reception at the out-of-town tryouts, where it was originally titled Away We Go. However, Rodgers and Hammerstein believed in their project, which was also their first collaboration together, and it paid off, literally. Oklahoma enticed and excited audiences with the unexpected. Oklahoma began with a woman churning butter on the stage and a cowboy singing offstage in the wings. And it was quiet. And it was so quiet that it landed like a bomb. It was revolutionary. Nobody expected that a musical comedy could open in such a naturalistic way. The story involved real characters and real people with real emotions and the use of dance in the iconic dream ballet section as a way of propelling the story forward, of exploring and explaining the characters' innermost thoughts and feelings and fears was revolutionary. It was received in 1943, the way Hamilton is received today, as something really radically new in the theater. And much like Hamilton, Oklahoma gave Americans hope by looking at how the past could motivate them to push towards the future. The country was still reeling from the hardships of the Great Depression and was trapped in the perils of World War II. Oklahoma allowed audiences to escape into the nostalgia of a simpler time when the cowboy had limitless possibilities in the new frontier. But the rugged American cowboy that's portrayed in Oklahoma isn't entirely accurate to its origins. When Texas officially joined the American Union, it's estimated that nearly 30% of the population were slaves. During the Civil War, slave owners were dependent on African Americans and Hispanic people to maintain their herds. However, following the Emancipation Proclamation, these owners were faced with the harsh reality that they didn't have the skills to do it on their own. Add in the fact that, due to circumstance, these races were often looked down on as boys. Historians have traced this to be how the word cowboy entered the American lexicon. In turn, when the film industry brought these stories to the screen, it was predominantly controlled by you guessed it, white males. Soon the stories of the exploited black and Hispanic cowboys were turned into mythic stories revolving around brawny, macho white dudes dripping with toxic masculinity. These characters would ride in on their horse, save a town from an outside threat, then take the girl as their prize for a job well done. This mentality finds its way into Curly. And the outside threat in this case is Judd. For the pop culture cowboy, communication and compromise were never options to save the day, or to get the girl for that matter. The only way they would succeed was by force and emasculation. See, the character of Curly wasn't actually created by Rogers and Hammerstein. In fact, Oklahoma is a musical adaptation of the play Green Grow the Lilacs by Lynn Riggs, who is, well, wow, sit down for this one. It's said that Lynn Riggs wrote Green Grow the Lilacs to try to capture his nostalgic feelings about growing up in Oklahoma before it was a state. But Lynn didn't really have an idyllic life. His mother died when he was two years old and his father remarried six months later to a wife who fit the description of an evil stepmother. 
Comparisons have been made between the outbuilding and the musical Oklahoma, which was inhabited by the evil Judd Fry, and the dark and evil place Riggs remembered when he was punished by his stepmother. Many characters in the show were based on real-life people, like Judd Fry, originally named Jeter, an actual man who pulled a knife on a family member, and Aunt Ella, who was a tribute to his aunt and mother. Riggs was also homosexual and later in life was a non-romantic escort for Hollywood actresses, including Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Not really relevant, but that's fascinating to me. Oscar Hammerstein, not Riggs, is credited with writing the libretto despite a credible argument, Hammerstein's in fact, that over half the dialogue is actually Riggs's own. But I don't make out Riggs to be this huge, sympathetic, unsung hero because... Although being part of a marginalized community, he was uncaring about African-Americans and Asian-Americans, often using them as a punchline and regularly using the N-word in his writing, including in Green Grow the Lilacs, where the slurs were spoken by, not Curly, but Aunt Ella and Laurie. These were, of course, cut out of Hammerstein's draft of the script. But this fact offers a glimpse at how the people of the territory view the people from outside their social circle. They view them as threats to their way of life, threats to the American ideal. For while Oklahoma delights in showcasing the small town camaraderie and neighborly admiration that comes with looking back on America with rose-colored lenses, it also unintentionally highlights the danger that can come from one not fitting in with that community. While the acceptable members of the community socialize freely with one another and sing about what a beautiful morning it is well into the afternoon and the evening, Judd is stuck doing the thankless toil of farm work before retiring to a rundown smokehouse at the end of the night. His only company coming from a dirty magazine and a bottle of liquor. After being treated like dirt in every Oklahoman town he's passed through, Lori agreeing to go with him to the box social of the century means more to him than just a date. It's him feeling like he's finally found someone who makes him belong. But for Curly, and a large majority of the territory, no one can comprehend why Lori would go with him. And so, staying true to that idea of the cowboy, Curly tries to stop it from happening in the worst way possible. This is what makes Curly so dangerous. At the beginning, it seems like his intentions are in the right place and that he's just a simple, down-to-earth, optimistic cowboy ready to seize the day. But as the musical progresses, his actions seem to present him in another way. Marlon Brando played a similar character in A Streetcar Named Desire, an idealized American man who wanted things to go back to the way they were. Brando also always held true to the belief of never playing a heavy as a heavy. A villain should always be justified in their own mind, and it's the belief that what they're doing is right that makes them even more compelling and dangerous. When Curly goes to confront Judd in his smokehouse, he thinks he's doing the right thing. In his mind, he knows what Laurie deserves, and that isn't Judd. This could be portrayed as noble in the right sense, but what makes the scene jarring is Curly's complete lack of empathy, compassion, or attempt to talk things out. Trigger warning for violence and suicidal themes. Though the initial conversation is awkward at first, 
Curly still attempts to appeal to the things that Judd likes and has interests in. But it takes a sudden and concerning turn when Curly notices a rope hanging up on the door and says, Strong hook you got there, Judd. You could hang yourself on that. I could what? The line is jarring. But when thinking about how the pop culture cowboy operates, it makes sense. In Curly's eyes, Judd is an outside threat, not only towards his relationship with Laurie, but to the territory as a whole. And in that assumption, there's no room for a non-violent middle ground. If anything, Curly embraces the same tendencies of a Richard III by using the dangerous weapon of the spoken word. He walks Judd through exactly how to end his life, after which he embarks on a song that attempts to convince Judd that the only way he's going to get people to care about him is if he's dead. The song is deceptive because it has the same sweeping and tender melody that's been apparent in his other numbers, but the words he chooses to use and his motivations for using them are dipped in venom. However, when the direct violence doesn't work, Curly goes for the next tactic, emasculation. At the box social, Curly attempts to show off his masculine dominance by bidding on the one thing that's destined to capture Lori's heart, a picnic basket. At first, Curly doesn't seem interested. What sparks him to action is when Judd starts bidding. While it's obvious that Curly has been against Judd up to this point, this scene also reveals that the community as a whole is against this outsider too. Everyone tries to outbid him. And just when it looks like Judd is going to win, Curly has no problem selling his belongings to other members of the community that desperately want to see him win. Even Judd putting up his entire life savings is still no match for the community that doesn't want him associating with Laurie. There's a lot of great points there, and I can't disagree with the fact that Curly's actions are not the best, but the blame is absolutely on the culture surrounding him. If he was raised with the social attitudes and sensitivities of today, he would be a very different character. I see a sweetness to him. When he kisses Laurie and finally admits to his feelings for her, he immediately needs space. Two kisses is all a man can handle in public shows that he might be new to this kind of thing and overwhelmed. But at his core, he seems to be a romantic. He gave up everything he owned at the box social, which may have been a dick-swinging contest, but I think he did it to prove his love for Laurie. And sure, he's not smart. His threats to Judd are idiotic. It feels similar to a child making a threat in a YouTube comment and not knowing the consequences of their words. I know what you're going to say, Brendan. He's a grown man. He should know better. But he doesn't, because he's a byproduct of the culture he was raised in. The behavior of the town's men on Curly and Laurie's wedding night speaks volumes. The hooting, trying to peek in at them, consummating the marriage, throwing straw baby dolls at them. Ado Annie's father threatens Ali Hakim with his gun quite liberally. And the ending, it's the elders of the town who are fighting for injustice with blackmail and fake news. But I have trouble defending Curly because he's never forced to be held accountable for anything that he does. Even after Judd gets his world rocked by his own dagger and dies, it looks as though Curly is finally going to have to answer for something and at least stand trial to get to the bottom of what really happened. 
But when it comes to choosing either due process for the outsider or letting their prodigal son enjoy his wedding night, well, guess which one the territory chooses? The scene that follows becomes an absolute kangaroo court, with the judge instructing Curly to say that he acted in self-defense. The jury, who consists entirely of the territory, unanimously votes him not guilty. And once again, Curly doesn't have to answer for anything. No remorse, no regret, no compassion. Just a flood of rose petals and the cowboy taking his prize. However, that ending is different from what happens in the source material. In Green Grow the Lilacs, there is no kangaroo court. Curly escapes jail to see Laurie, it's still their wedding night, and the men of the town come to fetch him back. Aunt Ella scolds them, saying, I thought you was a fine bunch of neighbors. Now I see you're just a gang of fools trying to take a bridegroom away from his bride. By the way, you're siding with the federal marshal. You'd think us people out here lived in the United States. The men of the town allow him to have his wedding night, but say they'll fetch him back right after breakfast, bright and early. This ending was likely changed in Hammerstein's version of the script to give a happy ending to a war-torn audience. In 1943, before the war had ended, a story about an American man killing someone in self-defense to protect his estate and the woman he loved couldn't have anything but a happy ending. People needed hope. And although the story makes clear who we are meant to think is the hero and who is the villain, it's not black and white. The audience can be empathetic for Judd, even though he has done and is capable of terrible things, Whereas Curly is painted as the protagonist, but he is big-headed and thinks he can get the girl by just existing. It's lots of shades of grey. No one is all good and no one is all bad. And in a territory with no strict rules yet, what else can you expect? I've seen many different interpretations of Oklahoma and the characters within it, but the way Laurie was portrayed in the 2019 revival has really stuck with me. Spoiler alert! Laurie, aware of Judd's lust for her, kisses him to see if the same feeling arises. It doesn't. And then at the end, Judd brings a knife to a gunfight. Curly shoots Judd, covering his and Laurie's wedding outfits in blood. The company reprises a couple of choruses of Oklahoma for the final number, while Laurie breaks down, still covered in blood, screaming and throwing things. Her fairy tale has been destroyed. Is she the reason an innocent man is dead? In that moment, it felt like Laurie realized the situation around her with a 21st century clarity, but she was still stuck in a world of early 20th century values. And in my eyes, this is the worst part of the whole feud. Laurie doesn't seem to ever really have a say in the matter. Her entire life seems to be based off this stupid picnic basket. She has to marry one of them. Either the cocky, domineering asshole, or the potential serial killer. Now, does Curly have redeemable qualities? Absolutely. But do those select few positives outweigh the severity of the negatives? I know I'm a bit biased. 
Oklahoma and the works of Rodgers and Hammerstein will always have a special place in my heart. I love the music and the stories, and I am a firm believer that they can be brought forward with a new legacy, celebrating members of minority groups in major roles, starting with Audra McDonald winning her first Tony Award for Carousel in 1994, and Ali Stroker, the first actor in a wheelchair to be nominated for and to receive the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical in 2019. These musicals should be for everyone, and I believe there's a way they can be. Given its prevalence in seasons for schools and community theaters, it's easy to write Oklahoma off as just another golden age romp that the whole family can enjoy. But I feel that when examining it deeper, it reveals the problems that come from romanticizing a revisionist history of America, a history that paints the picture of a happier, simpler time but does so by underselling or neglecting the mistreatment and hardships of the others. On paper, Curly is everything a film producer would want for that rugged cowboy hero, especially when he's compared to Judd. But just because Curly is the lesser of two evils, that doesn't mean that he isn't still evil in his own right. Curly is a villain who has everybody on his side, which creates this illusion that maybe he's justified in all his wrongdoings. This is the same mindset I saw time and again in the burger joint in my hometown as they sexually harassed waitresses, used racial slurs, and verbally berated anyone who felt like an outsider as they tried to preserve this twisted version of Mayberry from the intrusive hands of time. What's scarier is that this behavior was normal. There wasn't anything wrong with what they saw as being friendly. A majority of the guys wearing their cowboy boots and their belt buckles thought that they were modern day Curly McLean's. And ultimately, it's this mentality that cements Curly as the true villain of Oklahoma for me. More often than not, the most compelling evil forces are the ones who are misguided. The ones who you can see the glimmers of humanity that have been darkened by circumstance. So could it be that Curly really is the villain of Oklahoma? Or could it be that he's just the victim of circumstance? Congratulations to this week's Patreon Supreme, Chris McGovern. Chris, you might not know this, has a very great podcast called iPod What I Like. What makes it great, you might ask? Well, I was on an episode. If you want really insightful and just down-to-earth conversation, then I highly encourage you to go give it a listen. A big thank you to Anna Chloe Mori for making our videos sound the most refined they have ever sounded in their life. If I had a nickel for every time I said I wish I was British while editing this audio, I'd be able to quit my job. Speaking of quitting my job, special thanks to all of our patrons on Patreon who helped to make these videos possible. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.